Thanks for listening to the Frontline Audiocast, the enhanced audio version of our television documentaries. But we wanted to take a moment to let you know about Frontline's other feed, a podcast now in its second season that produces original documentaries made for listening. It's called The Frontline Dispatch, and you can find it by searching Frontline Dispatch in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. But back to the Frontline Audiocast. Here is the audiocast of Predator on the Reservation, broadcast February 12th on PBS. Tonight, a special investigation from Frontline and the Wall Street Journal. There were allegations of drug misuse, stealing, sexual abuse, and inappropriate behavior. Decades of dysfunction inside the federal agency that provides health care to Native Americans. The Indian Health Service, they just seem impervious to improvement, and they could not get it right. Because of the absolute need to fill positions, we don't really get the best of the best. And the case of a government pediatrician moved from reservation to reservation. My concerns was that this man was sexually using children. Despite the warnings. There was obviously a lot of people that knew something was going on, and they didn't do anything. The Indian Health Service and the failure to stop decades of abuse. What kind of cover-up is this? This involves a lot of people in a lot of high places. Predator on the Reservation. Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major support is provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. Additional support is provided by the Abrams Foundation, committed to excellence in journalism, the Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The John and Helen Glessner Family Trust, supporting trustworthy journalism that informs and inspires. The Heising Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. And by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler, and additional support from Tom Stair and Lucy Caldwell Stair. Tonight's program contains mature content, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. This is Special Agent Kurt Muller, Inspector uh, with the United States Department of Health and Human Services, Office of the Inspector General. I'm here meeting with Dr. Stanley Patrick Weber in his home on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation's uh, Indian Health Service Hospital campus. Dr. Stanley Patrick Weber was a pediatrician working for the Indian Health Service. We've got some instances what we need to talk about, okay? We're not here to judge anybody. We're here to try to get down to the facts of what had happened and why it happened. His patients were Native American children. Would there be any reason that your nurses were emphatic that you wanted to see boys instead of girls? I don't know. There was a certain type, skinny, muscular. Yeah. I mean, I'm not making this up, Doc. I'm talking to all the nurses. I know you wanted to keep things quiet, but things were never quiet. 
Allegations followed Dr. Weber from reservation to reservation. Let's be clear about this, okay? I have not had sex with my patients, and I don't. It's just a, a principle I have. But, you know, Doc, people have been talking for 20 years here. It seems that wherever you go, there's the allegations that you're, you know, we've had boys. Street Journal reporters Christopher Weaver and Dan Frosch have been on the trail of Dr. Stanley Patrick Weber and the government agency he worked for, the Indian Health Service. Starting about two years ago, we got interested in a federal agency called the Indian Health Service. Reporter Chris Weaver. Their hospitals have had an ugly track record in the last few years. They were missing diagnoses. Patients were dying for no reason. And we found that the agency had failed for many years to take in hand a series of structural problems that had basically rendered these hospitals um, you know, incapable of meeting their regulatory requirements. We found a bunch of doctors with troubled track records before they joined the IHS or once they got there. In some cases, people who had, who had been convicted of crimes prior to their service with the IHS. And the IHS hired them anyway. And the IHS hired them anyway. Reporter Dan Frosch. We began looking into troubled doctors that had got in trouble during the course of their careers at IHS. And one of those doctors was a guy by the name of Stanley Patrick Weber. Upon finishing the residency, he immediately joined the Indian Health Service. He was stationed from 86 to 89 at a hospital in Oklahoma, Ada, Oklahoma, that the IHS ran at that time. He was a pediatrician there. Wall Street Journal Deputy Investigations Chief Jennifer Forsyth. And have we tried to reach him? Yes. And? And he hasn't responded. This doctor being accused of uh, sexual assault by uh, patients, and we thought that warranted a broader look, both at Dr. Weber, but also at sort of widespread uh, practice of hiring doctors who, who would get into trouble. We thought, you know, we got to find out. Yeah, did the IHS know? Did anybody have any inkling that there might be an issue with this doctor? In 1992, Dr. Weber arrived in the little town of Browning, Montana, part of the Blackfeet Indian Reservation. Dan Frosch. Blackfeet Reservation is about 2,300 square miles. It butts up against Canada, this stunningly beautiful place. Like a lot of Indian reservations, there is high poverty rates, high rates of alcoholism, diabetes, domestic abuse, etc. And so this is really one of the most far-flung places that you could go uh, if you were a doctor. The reservation's only hospital was run by the IHS, which struggled to find doctors. Mary Ellen LaFramboise was the hospital's CEO at the time. We had been without a, a pediatrician for a while. So here comes Dr. Weber. And all I could think of is, he looks comfortable, huh? He looked young. And this seemed like he was, would be a good fit for us. One of the first things Dr. Weber did was help expand the hospital's youth outreach programs. 
and they were talking about, we want to do some things in the school. You know, we have some programs that would blend really well with middle school. I just thought, wow, here's something that the hospital can offer the community. We'll put Dr. Weber out there in the community. Almost from the start, concerns began to emerge. Tim Davis is the chairman of the Blackfeet tribe. Running Weasel is my uh, Indian name. But in 1992, he worked in the hospital's facilities department. That greenhouse, 105, is it? That's the one Weber was in. Part of his job was to inspect government-owned houses, including the one where Dr. Weber lived alone. So we did each annual uh, walkthrough. We'd come through each house, and I'd do the inspection of the roof, the floors, the walls, the windows, the doors, and then go through the basement, check out for any leaks. When I went downstairs is when I was kind of like floored because of what I saw there as a, to me, a signal of uh, something that wasn't right. The gentleman had uh, a lot of uh, food items, candy, pop, cookies, and then toys, games, videos, uh, games that boys would play with. I mean, I wasn't just a, a small, it was stacks of stuff. I mean, they were stacked. I mean, I'm a dad, I got boys, I got eight boys. And I mean, I buy my kids stuff, but it's not stacked up in the basement like, like that was, you know, that to me signaled there's something wrong with this guy. Davis says he shared his concerns with Marilyn Laframboise, who at the time didn't see it as cause for alarm. Law enforcement interview excerpts with Dr. Weber. Have you ever had any boys spend the night with you? Well, when I was in Browning, some kids would come by and they didn't have a place to stay. How old were the kids? I, I can't remember at the time. You think they were 18 or 10 or I mean? Most of them were probably, you know, eight, um, yeah, of age. I don't know. Some of them might have been minors. Former IHS hospital CEO, Mary Ellen Laframboise. The comments that were coming from maintenance about how there was a lot of traffic of young people in and out of Dr. Weber's um, quarters. And I think somebody had asked him about it, why there were so many young people. Oh, they, we just like to get together, you know, to have pizza or pop, you know, things that kids like to do. He seemed to be genuinely interested in our young people. He came with the idea of having a, a teen clinic area, you know, by having evening clinics, being more user-friendly to the community. Others at the hospital were suspicious of Dr. Weber's intentions. Psychologist Dan Foster and his wife Becky, a mental health specialist, knew some of Dr. Weber's patients. They became increasingly uncomfortable with his after-hours clinic. Normally, if you bring your child to a pediatrician, a parent is with them. Or if a social worker brings a child to a pediatrician, the social worker is with them. An adult is with them, but these boys were going in there alone. It was prepubescent adolescent males. Most of them teenagers, 12 to 15 years old. All of them vulnerable, high risk, many of whom we already had suspicions that they'd been sexually molested or, or abused. And so that, that was a red flag. And then uh, later, uh, one of our colleagues came and told me he had real concerns regarding this doctor's uh, bringing a, a couch into his, his office and that he was keeping 
uh, young males in their after hours when most of the staff had gone home. While Dr. Weber was on the Blackfeet Reservation, no child is known to have come forward with a specific allegation of abuse. But Becky Foster remembered one boy who she'd later had concerns about, Joe Fourhorns. He's now in prison for bank robbery, but spoke to reporter Dan Frosch by phone. Describe to me the first time you met Dr. Weber. I was skating. And I collided with another kid, and I fell, and I broke my tailbone, so they brought me to the hospital, and that's where I met him at. Came and did a checkup on me about a week later when I was at the uh, nursing center. Did he do anything that day that was inappropriate in your mind? Just the way he was talking to me, but had his hand was on, like, on my leg while he was talking to me, and he just left it there, and I kind of... That was, it made me uncomfortable. Why you just leave your hand on me, on my leg while you're talking to me? And Joe, tell me how old you were at this time. I was 11. Joe says he never told anyone at the time what was happening during his visits with Dr. Weber. But on the reservation, the rumors and suspicions were growing. Psychologist Dan Foster. He took the kids to Great Falls shopping. He took them to basketball tournaments when our kids would qualify. To us, that was getting the community used to seeing him with these kids and the implication of parental permission. Therapist Becky Foster. This is grooming behavior. So you take kids who are high risk, who are from difficult family circumstances, and who are poor and you offer them new clothes, and you offer them food, and you offer them you know, a home where the lights are on all the time, a child will gravitate toward that. Dan Foster says he decided to confront Dr. Weber. I had these concerns, and I wanted him to know that I was bringing these concerns forward. My hope was that if he were doing something, he would stop. And if he weren't, he would be warned and would modify his behavior accordingly. But, but he did not. How did he respond to you? Um, he was polite. He assured me that he would not harm a child. He was respectful. Uh, and then I just didn't see him after that. Law enforcement interview excerpts with Dr. Weber. Did you ever have any sexual contact with anybody in Blackfeet? Anybody, ad adult or juveniles? Not even adult. Not even adult, okay. No. Did you know some folks there by the last name of Fourhorns? Fourhorns? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't remember any Fourhorns. Joe Fourhorns talking to reporter Dan Frosch on the phone. I went to the hospital to get my eyes checked to see if I could get some glasses. And he was just saying stuff, like trying to touch me and told me that if I feel uncomfortable with what he was doing, to let him know, and he would stop. Yeah. And I told him that I did. Like, yeah, I feel uncomfortable. Like, I don't know what this is for. Like, why you touch me? Where was he touching you? Everywhere. Like, rubbing my leg and my arm and my chest and stuff like that. Was he touching you on your genitals as and well? He got to that, but not 
right there, not at that time. Finally, after years of suspicion and rumor, there was an incident that couldn't be ignored, involving a boy who'd been sleeping at the doctor's house. Mary Ellen LaFromboise. There was an incident reported to me where a family member to a kid, you know, went over there and wanted to fight him and ended up smashing him and smashing him in the face, breaking his glasses, kind of black eye. I just thought, you know, he's just gonna be, he's gonna be a problem. And then, you know, get with the other staff and they were like, yeah, you know, something's going on. The Framboise reached out to the region's top IHS official, who summoned the hospital's acting clinical director, Randy Rotenbiller, to his office in Billings. He said, you know, I'm concerned that you have a pedophile on your staff and, uh, and you need to get rid of him. And so I just said, okay, I've got to deal with this task. The first thing I did when I got back to Browning was called him and asked him to meet me in my office. And I said, well, uh, I've been told that you need to leave. And he said that he had had some threats made against him and he was worried about his life and he was ready to leave Browning anyway. And I think he packed up and left the next day. I guess the better response would be launch an investigation. And, and yet the IHS response is typically to sweep it under the rug or, you know, or pass it on to some other place. The IHS would transfer Dr. Weber to its hospital on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. Reporter Chris Weaver. Uh, the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation is notoriously one of the poorest places in the United States. The public health situation is dire. Life expectancy is among the very lowest in the country. Law enforcement interview excerpts with Dr. Weber. Why did you leave Blackfeet? Or why did you leave Blackfeet and come here? Well, you know, I have family in this area. And I've always wanted to come. I always thought my place was would be uh, High Ridge. I don't know why. I just felt that this was the place for me to come. But within months, a parent was already complaining that Dr. Weber had inappropriately examined a child. The IHS took him off clinical duties as federal authorities looked into it. They didn't substantiate the complaint, and Dr. Weber went back to work. But as in Montana, Weber's interactions with boys continued to raise suspicions. Kelly Brewer was a nurse who lived across the street from him. The tan house straight ahead, that was Dr. Weber's house. And then back here was where Dr. Weber's garden used to be. Like all this area here where it's kind of mulched, that was all garden. He hired kids to work in it all the time, and they were always young Native American boys, 10-ish to 12-ish in age. 
the kids coming and going would earn a nickname around the reservation. They call it the Weber Boys. Have you ever heard that term? We introduce you to it today because that's what was going on. People that live in the community were seeing boys coming and going out of and out of your house. Maybe the Inkley Rockers, that's where the tools are, but rarely would people come into my house. Which boys do you think did come into your house? Do you remember? The only ones that ever did needed to use the bathroom, and that was infrequent. Mm -hmm. But nobody's ever stayed here overnight, ever. Sometimes they're coming to use the phone, but that's about it. One of the so-called Weber boys was named Paul. Like Joe Fourhorns in Montana, he is now in prison, serving time for assault. Paul talks to reporter Chris Weaver on the phone. I had nothing and nobody. It's my stepmom talked my dad and they turned his back on me. And then my mom threw me out. You do what you have to in order to get by. You know what I mean? I do. We're talking you're like 13, 14 years old at this time. Yeah, about 13. Little guy, man. To be honest, I'm just kind of ashamed of the whole situation, you know? Paul says that in exchange for sexual favors, Weber would give him money or prescription drugs. Like the other boys, he kept his encounters a secret year after year. Here this guy was offering me money so I can find a place to sleep. All I had to do was a few f***ed up favors, and at the time, it just made me feel super f***ed up. One night, he says, he pushed back. That night, I did some pills and was drinking Everclear with it, man. I remember talking to Weber, and then I remember him telling me to come pick some money up, but was already drunk, and I remember blanking out. When I came to, he was pressing up on me, and that fool was like trying to press me against that table. Man, that whole Weber was just like, he was a predator. I remember telling him to back up. He was like, oh, you just want money? Is that all you come up here for? On the table, there was a wallet sitting there, so I snatched it and I shoved him. I remember running and seeing those cop lights. Then I ran inside, flew into that laundry room and tried to barricade myself in there, man. Tribal police officer Dan Hutspeth was called to the scene. Call came in. Uh, there was an assault. We chased the suspect down, located him not too far from the um, IHS housing. We took him into custody and then on to juvenile detention. As Hutspeth took Paul to juvenile detention, he asked him what was going on. Man, that was like the first time in a long time that somebody ever actually asked me, are you all right? What happened? Like actually showing some sympathy, you know? And then I was thinking about it and I did. I did talk to him about like that whole situation. The authorities now had a first-hand allegation of ongoing sexual abuse by Weber. But on the reservation, the tribal authorities don't have jurisdiction over non-Indians. So all Officer Hudspeth could do 
was pass along Paul's allegations to federal investigators. We forwarded on to the Bureau of Indian Affairs criminal investigations, but I'm not quite sure how they ran with it. All I do know is personally, um, I took, uh, I made sure my, my kids weren't saw, seen anymore by that pediatrician. The Bureau of Indian Affairs declined to comment, and Paul says no one from the federal government followed up with him. He kept quiet about what had happened after that. At the IHS hospital, one of Weber's fellow pediatricians was developing his own concerns. Dr. Mark Butterbrot. I'd hear him riffing through my charts, cherry-picking the, the, the cute teenage boys. So at that point, I started having some suspicions about him. He didn't like seeing babies, didn't like seeing toddlers, didn't like seeing girls, didn't like seeing teenage girls. So, so just professionally, I just kept butting heads with this guy. But I couldn't get anybody on the medical staff to listen to me. Again, Paul on the phone. There was times where I'd be at the hospital, right, and then like I'll, I'll go on to inside of Weber's little dancing room and like certain situations that happen, you know what I mean? And I'll come out and like nurses and other doctors, they'd just be like staring at me. They knew exactly what was up. When somebody looks at you a certain way, you know that they know something. Something inside is like, man, I hope they don't think this, I hope they don't think that, but you know that they do, you know, and at the same time, you're like, man, somebody help, you know what I'm saying? Somebody notice me, man, somebody help me, man. Like, they all just look the other way, though, you know? In November 2006, Paul did something that made it harder to look the other way. He wouldn't discuss the details over the prison phone line, but he had one of his friends on the reservation recount what happened. Henry Redcloud says he, Paul, and another friend were out drinking and looking for trouble, and then ran out of money. All of a sudden, you know, Paul's like, you know, that dog, he was like, let's just go over to the doctor's house, man. That Anyways, man, I can't remember if he was calling him a child molester or something like that. I can't remember, but I think I heard something like that. Paul had it out for Weber. Maybe it was just because of their little dealings, and I thought it was up, too, because he was my doctor. And I knew of several people that used to go get money from him. So we went up there, we parked. As soon as he opened the door, I just kicked the door. He staggered back and he dropped. And then I kicked him a few times, hit him a few times and threw him into the kitchen area. And then he was mumbling around and he started walking towards the back. Into that bathroom and Dr. Weber was sitting there looking at himself in the mirror. His eyes were f***ed up, bloody mouth, bloody nose. He's pretty well done for, man. So we better get that money. So he fooled out a couple hundred, and then he was like, here, 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 here you go, take it, take it. He said, just don't kill me. Dr. Weber made his way to the IHS hospital. Bill Puyer, the hospital's CEO, says security guards called him and said one of his doctors had been assaulted. So I went up there. And Dr. Weber was laying on the 
on a gurney in the, in the emergency room. He looked rather beaten up, traumatized and so forth. So I asked him, what's going on here? I said, who did this to you? He wouldn't tell me. He wouldn't say nothing. He wouldn't say anything he at all. He wouldn't say nothing. It was frustrating. Puyer says that he reported what happened to IHS's regional headquarters, but that his bosses never pursued the matter, and he was afraid to take it any further. I'll probably have been suspended, maybe even fired. You know, pretty much they can do what they want with you. Dr. Mark Butterbrot. When he was beaten to the point of needing skull x-rays, and no charges were filed for beating up a commissioned officer on federal grounds, to the point where he needed skull films. I thought, what on earth is going on? What kind of cover-up is this? I mean, this involves a lot of people in a lot of high places. Outraged, Dr. Butterbrot would become increasingly fixated on exposing Dr. Weber. Law enforcement interview excerpts with Dr. Weber. Dr. Butterbrot has been trying to hate me because apparently he heard that there was an accusation of abuse, okay? And he's been bringing it up ever since, okay, repeatedly. Why would there be a rub that he would bring things up? This way he lives his life. He starts, you know, jumping on people. Right. And I don't know why he does that. It's, um, you have to ask him. I think a lot of people thought I was um, overreacting. And people would say to me, you don't have any real evidence. And that was always the Indian Health Service line, too. You know, we've looked at the data bank. There's no complaints on him. Um, he's clean. And I learned that there was a psychologist who had worked with him at Browning and was aware of his activities at Browning, Montana, prior to 1995 when he came here. It was Dan and Becky Foster who had had concerns about Weber's behavior on the Blackfeet Reservation. Reporter Dan Frosch. When Mark is telling you guys, basically saying the crimes have been committed, how did that make you guys feel? Well, I think I, I think we just... Becky Foster. So you get to be just so angry and frustrated and then just kind of numb. Because part of what happens is that you can see all of these young people being hurt. And knowing that you've tried to do everything that you could do within the bounds of what's available to you. And then nothing happens. It says to me as a Indian woman, as a mother, is that your kids don't matter. Dan Foster. I felt deeply hurt and very angry. The anger was because I felt it was preventable. In fact, years earlier, Dan Foster had heard Weber was working at Pine Ridge and contacted IHS leaders there to warn them. Would you have said in his explicit terms, I'm worried this guy is a pedophile? Yes. No, I was clear. My concerns was that this man was sexually using children. After the encounter, Dr. Butterbrot was more determined than ever that Weber had to go. 
he complained to state medical boards and officials at the IHS. And he believed he'd finally found proof in a list of patients Weber had ordered tests on. So I looked at these charts, and there weren't any girls. They were all boys. On this page, there are 14 patients, and there's one female, one out of 14. I kept asking myself, why would a pediatrician zero in on a population consisting of normal weight boys and teenage boys? It just seemed incomprehensible to me. Dr. Weber was suspended while the allegations were investigated. Reporter Chris Weaver. When Dr. Weber was suspended by the Indian Health Service over allegations of misconduct in 2009, one of the officials who was sent to look into this was this guy, Ron Keats. Keats, who was one of Weber's superiors at the time, would soon leave the IHS under a cloud himself and later be convicted of possession of child pornography. So effectively, they sent a guy who would go on to be arrested a year later of trafficking in child porn to investigate suspicions that their pediatrician could be a pedophile. Keats did not respond to requests for comment. Weber was ultimately cleared and went back to work, according to Bill Puyer. The higher-ups, I guess, basically told me there was, um, they couldn't find any more reason to keep from suspension. There was no facts, evidence to support what happened, and so forth, and that's pretty much what they gave me, the answer they gave me, so we just directed me to put him back to work. At that time, did you believe that Dr. Weber was, you know, potentially engaged in some kind of misconduct towards children? I kind of felt that there could possibly be something going on here because I started looking at everything, but you know, I just never got nothing. You know, that was frustrating as well. In the summer of 2010 at the Pine Ridge Hospital, Dr. Weber and Dr. Butterbrot would clash over the care of a patient. Dr. Weber claimed he was threatened. Dr. Mark Butterbrot. Within an hour, I'm sitting in the office of the acting clinical director in Pine Ridge. And finally, I said something really out of line. I said, if I'd wanted to intimidate him, I would have cut his nuts off with a rusty knife. And that remark went right to Washington. I was branded as a violent, out-of-control person. And within a few weeks, was traveling up to Belcourt, North Dakota leaving my life and my career and my family, everything. The IHS sent Dr. Butterbrot to one of its most remote outposts, 575 miles away on the Canadian border. The nurses came up to me and said, now you know why we don't say anything, Dr. B. Look what they've done to you. I was ordered to leave. I was chased off by a pedophile and the people who chose him over me. Months later, a new IHS chief medical officer arrived in the region. You know, it just seemed like a perfect storm of issues that kind of arose. Uh... Rod Cooney determined that Dr. Butterbrot had been unfairly punished. No, I credit. Mark Butterbrot, because he, I mean, he laid his career on the line and doing what he needed to do, really. 
he did the right things and you know and he's a direct result of people fearing would happen what might happen to you i mean it happened to him and that's why people didn't come forward like he did and that's sad that that attitude has to prevail but you know people are scared to come forward Many of the officials who ran IHS during the years Dr. Weber was there declined to be interviewed. But reporter Chris Weaver tracked down Bob McSwain. Mr. McSwain. Hi, I'm Chris Weaver. He worked at the IHS for more than 40 years, including two stints as director. McSwain conceded the agency has long tolerated problem doctors like Weber. It goes back to the, the very heart of, uh, they needed uh, uh, his skills, and so they, they moved him around to, to maintain his, his contribution. It's fair to say that because of the, the absolute need to fill positions, we don't really get the best of the best. We get someone who, uh, they have a degree, <laughs> they're licensed, and our requirement on licensing is at least licensed in one state in the system. And there's a strange tolerance level that, oh, okay, the guy's a, a womanizer, or a guy's this, and a guy's that, um, but he comes in to see patients. Okay. You know, and the, the, the antithesis is, what would it be if he didn't come in? Who's going to see the patients? I'm going to call the hearing to order. This is a hearing of the Indian Affairs Committee. In 2010, the dysfunction at the IHS got attention in Washington at the Senate's Indian Affairs Committee. Senator Byron Dorgan was chairman at the time. We've got a couple employees here that are trouble. And not only does the employee not get disciplined, but the employee gets a bonus. We found people who were transferred from one to the other, despite the fact that there were allegations of drug misuse, stealing, uh, sexual abuse, inappropriate behavior, uh, a whole series of things that would, in, in almost every other circumstance in life, require you to discharge someone, fire someone. Instead, the Indian Health Service moves them they transfer them, they move them to the next service unit. And let's have somebody else live with the, the incompetence and the mistakes. This system is not working, just isn't working. We tried to browbeat the IHS in every way we knew how to get them to straighten out and they just seem impervious to improvement and they could not get it right. In the case of Dr. Weber, warnings continued to go unheeded for years. In 2011, one of them reached Winona Stabler, then the CEO of the Pine Ridge Hospital. She says a caller complained about Dr. Weber, but didn't provide her any specifics. The matter never went anywhere. Stabler later received a gift of $5,000 from Dr. Weber and would plead guilty to not reporting it on a government ethics form. She didn't respond to requests for comment. Then, one day in 2015, it all started to unravel. A tribal prosecutor recalled something Dr. Mark Butterbrot had told her years before. Elaine Yellowhorse, 
Mark and I are really good friends. Um, I've known him since I was in high school, so he was frustrated. I remember one day and he told me about Dr. Weber and how he was molesting kids. I was driving to work and there was snow on the ground when I was thinking about the case. And I was like, I wonder if the Attorney General even heard about this. Then Oglala Sioux Tribe Attorney General, Tatewi Means. She just asked, there's some leads that I have on this. Can I start looking into this and seeing what I can find? So I said, absolutely. If you can find something, let's track it down and we'll take that information forward. As in the past, it was hard to get anyone to talk. Weber's alleged victims are all boys, so you know it's even that much harder to get a, a boy or a man to speak about sexual abuse. So I think trust is a big thing. We felt it was a priority to at least identify a potential victim so that it wouldn't be dismissed anymore, so that it would be taken seriously and a full investigation would happen. they began to look into the assault on Dr. Weber a decade earlier. I learned that he was beat up really bad, that he was so beaten that he had to get MRIs done. What I think people should have noticed was that he didn't press any charges on anybody. And those whole circumstances just looked um, odd. There was something not right about that. And I did go looking for that police report if he was beat up so bad, you know, the ambulances should have came, police officers should have came, but I couldn't find anything. After months of searching, she found a woman who said she knew the boys who'd done it. But she didn't give me much detail. She just said, yeah, they came to me that night after they beat up Dr. Weber. She gave me the name of one of them. And I was like, all right, fine. I have this one name to go on. We found out he was in prison, state prison. It was Paul. By then, in his late 20s. He's a bad man. What he did in the past, what, what we went through, what he, I was put through, that type of stuff deserves punishment. He, he got what he had coming to him. But that's why what happened, happened. And after we received that information, um, we provided that, that potential victim's name to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Today's date is May 19th, 2016. Federal investigators followed the trail the tribal authorities had uncovered. It started with Paul's name and led to Dr. Weber's door. Dr. Weber's been kind enough to invite us into his home to discuss a few things. Now, is it all right if we record the conversation? Yeah. Okay, great. Specifically, there's an allegation that he's Dr. Weber involving a patient of yours I've heard from another kid that he had made an accusation that I was sexually molesting him. About, we go back to when he was a juvenile and uh -huh. was in the juvenile service center. I don't want to say anything. I mean, saying that on that day he had sex with you. Yeah, it's not true. Specifically, that you gave him a job inside your car. It didn't happen. Okay. Remember checking into hotel with Paul. Did it ever concern you that 
people would talk in the community about boys coming over a lot. Waterbrook was somebody that, that I know he's complaining about. Is he wrong when he says you're picking up more boys? I have not had sex with my patients. Do you remember any of the uh, providers by the name of Foster? Did you ever talk to them about these allegations? I can't. Did you ever discuss these things with Bill Poirier when he was CEO? Not really. You mentioned that kids stayed with you at your house in Blackfeet. They did at times. And you don't remember anybody by the name of Four Horns? Four Horns? No, I don't. The years of accusations had finally caught up with Dr. Weber. Federal prosecutors would charge him with the abuse of four boys on Pine Ridge and two on the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. In September 2018, more than two decades after he was forced off the Blackfeet Reservation, Dr. Weber arrived at the courthouse in Great Falls, Montana to stand trial. The first witness was Joe Fourhorns. Now 35 years old. Reporter Dan Frosch. And in walks Joe. And he is this muscle-bound guy, tattoos on his face, shackled. Very tough-looking guy. The prosecutor, in her opening statement, she puts up a picture of Joe Fourhorns when he was about 10 or 11 years old, right around the time that he would have been abused by Dr. Weber. She wants the jury to remember this little boy. Recording was not allowed in the court. This is the trial testimony voiced by actors. Can I call you Joe? Yeah. Joe answers their questions. It's clear he does not want to be on the stand. Did he ever kiss you? Yeah. Where did he kiss you? The lips, my face, my neck, and my chest. Did he touch any other part of your body with his hand? Yeah, my penis. Dr. Weber is sitting there, emotionless. Did you ever touch his penis? Placid. Yeah, yes. Why did you do that? Because he told me to. He looks more like the little boy on the screen than he does the hardened felon that is sitting there. He's talking about the most humiliating thing that he could ever imagine talking about. He breaks down crying. Dr. Weber's attorney questioned why Joe had never spoken up before. Joe reacts in a way that undercuts the defense's entire sort of line of questioning. Right now, I don't want to talk about this. I don't ever want to talk about that. And explained in really sort of honest, gut-wrenching, visceral terms why he had never told anybody about this. I got molested as a little kid, man. I don't want to talk about that. All right, I'll tell you the truth. Those pieces of those child molesters, they deserve to be in prison. They don't deserve to be on the street. They deserve to get up and killed in prison. And that's what's going to happen. So, so during his testimony, and as he began sort of discussing in detail what had happened to him, his mom had to leave the courtroom in tears. Marion Fourhorns had lost custody of her son during those years. I never knew about any of this. And I feel bad for my boy because I wasn't able to protect him. 
I feel, I really feel <laughs> I really hurt for you. I don't know what to do. The extent of the allegations against Dr. Weber would begin to emerge as the trial unfolded, with more men describing what they said he'd done to them as boys. Dan Frosch. The prosecution brings the, uh, several corroborating witnesses from Pine Ridge. And as was the case with Joe, you see these tough guys sort of reduced to little boys. Despite the testimony against him, Dr. Weber continued to shrug off the allegations. It's a nice day today, nice sunny day. On the third day of the trial, the jury came back with its verdict, guilty on multiple counts of sexual abuse. Weber is appealing, and later this year, he's scheduled to go on trial in South Dakota for alleged abuses there. Elaine Yellowhorse. I'm very glad that he was caught. I still am frustrated that he was allowed to work for so long in that environment. I think I'm still frustrated that more people haven't been charged criminally. Marion Fourhorns. There was obviously a lot of people that knew something was going on. And they didn't do anything. They just let him go. I feel like somebody should pay for, for what all these boys went through because people knew. To date, no one else in the IHS has been held accountable. And many of the officials who oversaw Dr. Weber did not respond to requests for comment. But following questions from Frontline and the Wall Street Journal, the agency ordered an independent investigation of Weber's tenure. The current head of IHS agreed to talk about it and asked to do the interview at the hospital on Pine Ridge where Weber had worked. Rear Admiral Michael Wiaki has been leading the agency since 2017. Since this case has come to light, we've been doing a lot of um, checking internally to, to see what people may or may not have known. If there are individuals who were aware that uh, something was going on, then you're basically culpable and complicit in, in those actions. So I'm in the process now of devel developing a new policy that will require that every Indian Health Service employee be a mandatory reporter. Of what? Of any potential child abuse, any uh, sexual assault, any uh, anything potentially criminal in nature. Reporter Chris Weaver. And what would be a satisfying resolution to the crisis around the case of Dr. Weber? Did he do his time? Did he pay for what he did? Uh, he did a lot of damage to our agency. Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, the difficulties we have recruiting providers. Um, this isn't going to help. Where do you set the bar for yourself in terms of leading the agency out of this crisis? 
I think the bar is extremely high. There are so many people depending upon us. My own family receives their health care through the Indian Health Service, so I go home every day. And The expectation is to fix this. In January 2019, Dr. Weber, now 70 years old, was sentenced to more than 18 years in prison. But haunting questions remain. Former IHS acting clinical director, Dr. Randy Rotenbiller. You know, it doesn't sit well that somebody like this monster came in and did what he did. You know, and I didn't do much to prevent it. I certainly could have done more. Former Pine Ridge IHS Hospital CEO, Bill Puyer. Well, at that time, you think of your career and job and your livelihood, so I probably would have got fired. I guess that was the risk I would have took. I couldn't afford to take the risk at that time to get, lose my job. Do I feel responsible for it? No. No. Former Browning IHS Hospital CEO, Mary Ellen LaFromboise. I guess I have to blame the bureaucracy of Indian Health Service. But I, I have to say, it was on my watch that happened. I should have known better, but I didn't. That, that's still hard for me to kind of deal with. After nearly 30 years, no one knows how many victims of Weber's abuse are still out there or how many other people in the Indian Health Service could have done more to stop him. Go to pbs.org frontline and wsj.com for the latest reporting on the story and learn more from the reporters about investigating the Indian Health Service. We found a bunch of doctors with troubled track records before they joined the IHS or once they got there. Then visit our watch page where you can view more than 200 Frontline documentaries. Connect with the Frontline community on Facebook and Twitter and sign up for our newsletter at pbs.org frontline. Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major support is provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. Additional support is provided by the Abrams Foundation, committed to excellence in journalism, the Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The John and Helen Glessner Family Trust, supporting trustworthy journalism that informs and inspires. The Heising Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. And by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler, and additional support from Tom Stair and Lucy Caldwell Stair.
Predator on the Reservation was produced and written by Gabe Johnson, Christopher Weaver, and Dan Frosch. Co-produced by Frank Kewen and Fanny Lee, and reported by Christopher Weaver, Dan Frosch, and Gabe Johnson. The managing editor of Frontline is Andrew Metz. The executive producer of Frontline is Rainey Aronson-Roth. Frontline's Predator on the Reservation on DVD. Visit Shop PBS or call 1-800-PLAY-PBS. This program is also available on Amazon Prime Video.